Section 7 of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 7. Moreover, he not only set out bravely, but for many hours held true keeping so rigid a control over his feelings that it seemed literally to cost him blood all the time however a passionate yearning most craftily attacked him and the very memory he strove to smother rose with a persistence that ridiculed repression like snowflakes whose individual weight is inappreciable but their cumulative burden irresistible the thoughts of her gathered behind his spirit ready at a given moment to overwhelm and it was on the way home again in the evening that the temptation came upon him like a tidal wave that made the mere idea of resistance seem utterly absurd he remembered wondering with a kind of wild delight whether it could be possible for any human will to withstand such a tempest of pressure as that which took him by the shoulders and literally pushed him out of his course towards the little hotel on the edge of the forest it was utterly inconsistent of course and he made no pretence of argument or excuse he hardly knew indeed what he expected to see or do his mind at least framed no definite idea but far within him that deep heart which refused to be stifled cried out for a drop of the living water that was now its very life and chiefly he wanted to see if only he could see her once again even from a distance the merest glimpse with one more sight of her that should charge his memory to the brim for life he might face the future with more courage perhaps ah that perhaps for she was drawing him with those million invisible cords of love that persuade a man he is acting of his own volition when actually he is but obeying the inevitable forces that bind the planets and the suns and this time there was no hurry there was a good hour before mark would expect him home for supper he could sit among the shadows of the wood and wait in his pocket were the field glasses and he realized with a sudden secret shame that it was not by accident that they were there he stumbled even before he got within a quarter of a mile of the place for the idea that perhaps he would see her again made him ridiculously happy and like a schoolboy he positively trembled tripping over roots and misjudging the distance of his steps it was all part of a great whirling dream in which his soul sang and shouted the first delirious nonsense that came into his head the possibility of his eyes again meeting hers produced a sensation of triumph and exultation that only one word describes intoxication as he approached the opening in the trees whence the hotel was so easily visible he went more slowly moving even on tiptoe it was instinctive for he was nearing a place made holy by his love picking his way almost stealthily he found the very tree then leaned against it while his eyes searched eagerly for a sign of her in the glass veranda the swiftness and accuracy of sight at such a time may be cause for wonder but it is beyond question that in less than a single second he knew that the throng of moving figures did not contain the one he sought. She was not among them. And he was just preparing to make himself comfortable for an extended watch when a sound or movement, perhaps both, somewhere among the trees on his right, attracted his attention. 
There was a faint rustling. A twig snapped. Stephen turned sharply. Under a big spruce, not half a dozen yards away, something moved, then rose up. At first, owing to the gloom, he took it for an animal of some kind, but the same second he saw that it was a human figure. It was two human figures, standing close together. Then one moved apart from the other. He saw the outline of a man against a space of sky between the trees, and a voice spoke, a voice charged with great tenderness, yet driven by high passion. But it's nothing, nothing. I shall not be gone two minutes, and to save you an instant's discomfort, you know that I would run the whole circle of the earth. Wait here for me. That was all. But the voice and figure caused Stephen's heart to stop beating, as though it had been suddenly plunged into ice, for they were the voice and the figure of his brother Mark. Quickly running down the slope towards the hotel, Mark disappeared. The other figure, leaning against the tree, was the figure of a girl, and Stephen, even in that first instant of fearful bewilderment, understood why it was that the face of the man Samarians had so charmed him, for this, of course, was his daughter, and then the whole thing flashed mercilessly clear upon his inner vision, and he knew that Mark, too, had been swept from his feet and was undergoing the same fierce tortures and fighting the same dread battle as himself. There seemed to be no conscious act of recognition. The fire that flamed through him and set his frozen heart so fearfully beating again, hammering against his ribs, left him apparently without volition or any power of cerebral action at all. She stood there not half a dozen yards away from where he sat all huddled upon the ground, stood there in all her beauty, her mystery, her wonder, near enough for him to have taken her almost with a single leap into his arms, stood there, veiled a little by the shadows of the dusk, waiting for the return of Mark. He remembers what happened with a blurred indistinctness common to moments of overwhelming passion. For in the next few seconds, that mocked all scale of time, he lived through a series of concentrated emotions that burned his brain too vividly for precise recollection. He rose to his feet unsteadily, his hand upon the rough bark of the tree. Absurd details only seemed to remain of these few moments that a foot was asleep with pins and needles up to the knee, and that his slouch hat fell from his head, filling him with fury because it hid her from him for the fraction of a second. These are details he remembers. And then, as though the driving power of the universe had deliberately pushed him from behind, he was advancing slowly, with short, broken steps, towards the tree where the girl stood with her back half-turned against him. He did not know her name, had never heard her voice, had never even stood close enough to feel her atmosphere. Yet, so deeply had his love and imagination already prepared the little paths of intimacy within him, that he felt he was moving towards someone whom he had known ever since he could remember, and who belonged to him as utterly as if from the beginning of time his possession of her had been absolute. Had they shared together a whole series of previous lives, 
the sensation could not have been more convincing and complete. And, out of all this whirlwind and tumult, two small actions, he remembers, were delivered. A confused cry that was no definite word came from his lips, and he opened his arms to take her to his heart. Whereupon, of course, she turned with a quick start and became for the first time aware of his near presence. Oh, oh, but how so softly quick you return, she cried falteringly looking into his eyes with a smile both of welcome and alarm. You a little frightened me, I tell you. It was just the voice he had known would come, with the curiously slow, dragging tone of its broken English, the words lingering against the lips as if loath to leave, the soft warmth of their sound in a throat like a caress. The next instant he held her smothered in his arms, his face buried in the scented hair about her neck. There was an unbelievable time of forgetfulness in which touch, perfume, and a healing power that emanated from her blessed the depths of his soul with a peace that calmed all pain, stilled all tumult, a moment in which time itself for once stopped its remorseless journey and the very processes of life stood still to watch. Then there was a frightened cry, and she had pushed him from her. She stood there, her soft eyes puzzled and surprised, looking hard at him, panting a little, her breast heaving, and Stephen understood then, if he had not already understood before. The gesture of recognition in the hotel veranda two days ago, and this glorious realization of it that now seemed to have happened a century ago, shared a common origin. They were intended for another and, on both occasions, the girl had taken him for his brother, Mark. And, turning sharply, almost falling with the abruptness of it all, as the girl's lips uttered that sudden cry, he saw close beside them the very person for whom they were intended. Mark had come up the slope behind them unobserved, carrying upon his arm the little red cloak he had been to fetch. It was as though a wind of ice had struck him in the face. The revulsion of feeling with which Stephen saw the return of his brother passed rapidly into a state of numbness, where all emotion whatsoever ebbed like the tides of death. He lost momentarily the power of realization. He forgot who he was, what he was doing there. He was dazed by the fact that Mark had so completely forestalled him. His life shook and tottered upon its foundations. Then the face and figure of his brother swayed before his eyes like the branch of a tree, as an attack of passing dizziness seized him. It may have been a mere hazard that led his fingers to close, moist and clammy upon the geological hammer at his belt. Certainly, he let it go again almost at once, and, when the tide of emotion returned upon him with the dreadful momentum it had gathered during the interval, the possibility of his yielding to wild impulse in doing something mad or criminal was obviated by the swift enactment of an exceedingly poignant little drama that made both brothers forget themselves in their desire to save the girl. In sweetest bewilderment, like a frightened little child or animal, the girl looked from one brother to the other, her eyes shone in the dusk. Strangely appealing, her loveliness was in that moment of seeking some explanation of the double vision. She made a movement first towards Mark, 
turned halfway in her steps and ran, startled, upon Stephen. Then, with a sharp scream of fear, dropped in a heap to the ground midway between the two. Her indecision of half a second, however, seemed to Stephen to have lasted many minutes. Had she fallen finally into the arms of his brother, he felt nothing on earth could have prevented his leaping upon him with the hands of a murderer. As it was, mercifully, the singular beauty of her little eastern face, touched as it was by the white terror of her soul, momentarily arrested all other feelings in him. A shudder of fearful admiration passed through him as he saw her sway and fall. Thus might have dropped some soft angel from the skies. It was Mark, however, with his usual decision, who brought some possibility of focus back to his mind. And he did it with an action and a sentence so utterly unexpected, so incongruous amid this whirlwind of passion, that had he seen it on the stage or read it in a novel, he must surely have burst out laughing. For, in that very second after the dear form swayed and fell, while the eyes of the brothers met across her in one swift look that held the possibilities of the direst results. Mark, his face abruptly clearing to calmness, stooped down beside the prostrate girl and, looking up at Stephen steadily, said in a gentle voice, but with his most deliberate professional manner, Stephen, old fellow, this is my patient. One of us, perhaps, had better go. He bent down to loosen the dress at the throat and chafe the cold hands, and Stephen, uncertain exactly what he did, and trembling like a child, turned and disappeared among the thick trees in the direction of their little house, for he understood only one thing clearly in that awful moment, that he must either kill or not see. And his will, well-nigh breaking beneath the pressure, was just able to take the latter course. Go, it said peremptorily, and the little word sounded through the depths of his soul like the tolling of a last bell. End of section 7